Hi there! Welcome to Totally Fantastic Title. I'm Krista Wallace. Wow, I was having so much trouble coming up with an intro today. I'm feeling kind of wiped out, I guess. And then I looked up and I watched my neighbor across the street bring two very, very large stuffed animals out of the house by the scruff of their necks. And he tossed them in the back of a van. I imagine there's a story there. (laughs) Do you ever hear a random comment and wonder what the heck those people were talking about? The girl and I started writing those down. It began with a kid's book at the doctor's office. You know, there are all these little books sitting there for the kids to look at while they wait. This book was missing a cover. And when we opened it, it opened to the words... He put her in the wooden chest and waited for the bear. To this day, we have no idea what that story was, and we found it so funny we giggled for ages, and it's become kind of a thing. And then we started paying attention to those kind of comments out in public and writing them down. Like, (laughs) these are are all things that you sort of hear people say as you wander by or something like that, and you wonder, what the heck are they talking about? Whose nose did you blow? I already have my hands full with the major lunatics. So, was your head on the floor? Well, you can't put it in your hair unless it's serious. She's gonna have a nose. And my most recent favorite makes my life a whole lot easier than just relying on bark. (laughs) Actually, that last one wasn't heard randomly at all. That was in a conversation with the girl, and I know exactly what the context was, but it struck me that it would be hilarious if I had heard it out of context. And no, I'm not going to tell you what the context was. If you want, you can make up a little story about it. So a listener asked me how many chapters are left in the story. I figure that's a fair question, because if you were reading it, you would be able to see how close you are to the end. The answer is, there are five chapters left, including this one today. We are winding it up before winding it down. Gatekeeper's Deception by Krista Wallace. Chapter 31. A Family Called Halliden. Derry sat hunched in the library just down the hall from Kean's study and Alon's chamber. He had tried three chairs and could find comfort in none of them. A book sat supported by his flexed fingers, morning sunlight striping across it from the window, but he could not have described its contents. Its pages smelled musty and faintly like pipe smoke. Its cover bore the title, Home Fires, Tales of the Fall of Eckert, from which he had hoped to glean some insight, or at least perspective, about his current situation, or maybe a glimpse of home— The handwritten words swam before his sleep-deprived eyes, and after twenty minutes he had absorbed none of them. "'Aha!' said a gruff voice, and Derry, too tired to be startled, glanced up to see Janik in the doorway. "'Haven't seen you at the last few meals.' Derry shrugged. "'I've not been too hungry. Just grabbed a bite to eat in my room.' "'I just came from our beleaguered renegade. He's getting impatient to have his say.' Derry rolled his eyes and uttered a small growl. He's just going to have to wait. That's what I told him. The captain didn't respond, but tipped his head back and stared at the ceiling. Janik's bewhiskered jaw jutted forward. He sighed and shunted his form toward Derry. 
Lowering himself into the chair opposite, he said, You know, you two had been inseparable. Derry didn't pretend he didn't know what the dwarf was talking about. He looked out the window across the tops of the low buildings on the other side of the courtyard, out to where they'd emerged from Kier's gate. Some things have happened, Janik. I'm not sure where I'm at right now. Janik shifted as if he didn't care for that chair any more than Derry had. I don't say too much, Captain, but I do know one thing. You're not going to sort any of this out by sitting around ruminating. He leaned forward and softened his tone. By the gods, man, she saved your life. You have a problem with Kier? Go talk to Kier. As if I hadn't thought of that, Derry thought crossly, but he checked his temper. I intend to, but I don't know what to say to her. I haven't decided yet how I feel about all this. And there's that damned mirror. You're more likely to figure it out if you leave your indecision in your stuffy little room and face her. Janik rose. That's all I have to say. Derry slapped the table next to him. I'll speak to her when I'm good and ready and not before. Have it your way. Derry watched Janik walk out. His eyes smarted. Frederick had slept on it, and his sleeping mind had puzzled over his dilemma. As he'd slowly awakened in his warm, aromatic accommodation, his unconscious mind had shared its findings. As soon as he could that morning, he'd taken steps to put it into operation. It felt like a cheap course of action. It galled him a little. But Frederick was desperate. Even though Derry had said he'd speak on his behalf, Frederick had to be realistic. Val's insipid green captain had never been one of those who'd admired Captain Frederick Hayland. In spite of his good intentions, Derry Morant would want to defend Kier. It would come much more naturally to him. So Frederick had chosen a desperate method of getting Kean's attention. He slipped unseen out of the kitchens. Now it's all about timing. All he had to do was wait long enough for Kean to receive the information. Then the stage would be set for Frederick's entrance. He would enter and tell his story. By that time, Kian would be ready to listen. Val's voice answered Derry's knock. The captain swallowed hard and entered. My lord, I must tell you this. He closed the door. Val raised his eyebrows at him. Keep going, don't spare him. Derry didn't sit down. Sir, there's something I didn't tell you yesterday, because it will hurt you. My heart tells me I must, in the name of justice. Because I promised Frederick, and because I can't stand your blind defense of her. You need to know the truth. Of course, Derry. Valraker's eyes were steady, his voice sober. I wanted more evidence before I'd believe Kier capable of such a crime. I wanted something more concrete. He hesitated. You got it and wish you hadn't, Val said. Derry stared at the air before him. Anyway, I guess I'd better show you this. He placed on the desk before Val the bundle of black cloth he had confiscated from Kier's belongings. The dark elf lifted aside the corners of cloth, and his gray eyes enlarged when he saw the gold mirror. It's Alon's, Valraker said matter-of-factly. I've seen it before. Derry looked away. If Kier was never in Alon's room, I can't imagine how she got a hold of that. 
Valraker turned the thing over and over in his scarred hands, his eyes narrow, lips pursed. Derry thought he looked just as grave as when he'd told him about the lady's illness. How did you happen by it? Val asked. I was putting something away and found it in her saddlebag. It's damning evidence, to be sure, Val exhaled heavily. And you don't like it at all, Derry thought. Both men jumped as the door opened. Horror flashed upon Val's face, but disappeared quick as lightning. "'Have you ever heard of knocking?' Val asked casually with a smile. Kean moved closer. "'It's my study. I didn't see that I had to knock.' Then the Duke's gaze fell on the item on the desk. "'Where did you get that?' Val didn't want to tell him. Derry knew by the Dark Elf's nonchalant expression, and for some reason it irked him. Kean picked up on the hesitation. "'Where did you get that?' he demanded. "'It's been missing for weeks.' Kean, there's a logical explanation, I'm sure. Derry couldn't believe it. He doesn't want Kean to think ill of Kier. I found it, Derry blurted. Valraker's eyes closed. Where was it? Kean asked. Val pleaded wordlessly with Derry. Captain Derry Morant was incapable of lying. It was in Kier's saddlebag. Derry had no idea Kean's face could be any paler, but what little color there was drained. How did it get there? the high elf asked Derry, dismissing Val's protestations. Derry hated what he was doing to Val, but it had to be done. Kean, I'm afraid we have some reason to believe that Kier has been here before. Kier felt sick and miserable. Imogen insisted she eat her oatmeal, and no amount of griping would change that good woman's way of thinking. Kier forced the muck down her throat, but she did not feel better. Even after Val's horrible little visit last night, still nobody came to see her. She was somehow in trouble, and her imagination ran rampant. Derry and the others didn't know about her dreams. Jeskelin had been upset when she mentioned the symbolism of the serpent, yet she didn't know why. In one instant, Val commended her on her contribution to the mission, and in the next, he, of all people, had all but called her a liar. Her eyes stung with the hurt from his remarks, her head swam with perplexity, and she was sick to death of lying down. Valreker knew she not only understood his dark elvish words, but that she spoke her own. Brendau had told her to never reveal her knowledge of the forbidden language under any circumstances— what would Valraker do? Would she be punished? But then it struck her to ask, Why did he speak to me in Dark Elvish at all, unless... Had he suspected all along that she knew it? He'd tested her, and she failed. Kier wanted to slam her fist on the bed, but her injuries forbade it. Her frustration and fear gave more power to her thoughts and more intensity to her loneliness. What did her friends think she had done? Why did I even come on this mission? There was one person who could remind her. Imogen, please, she begged. I have seen way too much of these white walls. Isn't there some way you can help me to get out of here? The healer did not like it, but she finally agreed. She tied Kier's right arm against her chest in a sling and provided her with a crutch for underneath her left arm. Now, young miss, you take things slowly, rest frequently, and come back within twenty minutes. Kier nodded, agreeable to any conditions, as long as she could see the light of day. 
Grasping the crutch was tricky with the fingertips that stuck out beneath her plastered left arm, so anything other than taking things slowly was impossible. Her head felt woozy, this being the first time she'd been fully vertical in two weeks. Miraculously, she managed to hobble out of the house of healing. She found herself at the edge of a courtyard dotted with trees, framed with flower beds and surrounded by low buildings, all except the keep on the opposite side. A cobblestone pathway curved down a hill off to her left, and the smell of horses told her what lay at its foot. So this is Barthelen Castle. If she hadn't had to concentrate so heavily on walking, she might have been more awed by the structure, the asymmetrical design, the angles and towers and buttresses. She took this in superficially, staying mostly focused on the bright, cream-colored stone that paved the courtyard. It was so smooth she didn't have to worry about tripping. The fresh air smelled good and felt better. The sunshine warmed her blood. She could almost feel it thickening and coursing vigor through her where there had been none. She shuffled along, seeing no one but the odd pair of guards. A stone bench under a beech tree provided a spot to catch her breath. Then she continued her journey, limping up the path to the door of the keep. A few paces away from the front steps, Kier glanced up from her feet to see a figure hurtle out of the door. Whoever it was dashed down the steps and in its haste nearly collided with Kier. Look out, she cried, trying to sidestep and nearly toppling over. Years of Wepnian training served her well, and even on a crutch her light-footed steps saved her. Having regained her balance, she recognized the hooded face of Frederick Hayland. He looked at her as though she were a ghost. What in Garen's name are you doing here? she sneered. Got another message for me? Frederick glanced back toward the door as if expecting to see someone. Whatever his reason for haste, he apparently decided to take the risk of talking to Kier, but a dagger was in his hand before he spoke. I should have killed you when I had the chance. Why didn't you? she asked rhetorically. They both knew the answer. His eyes flamed under the shadows of his hood. She met his gaze levelly. Put that thing away, Frederick. You won't kill me now, either. If you tell a soul you saw me here, I will kill you. You have my word on that. Kier's eyebrows arched. Tell me again what your word is worth exactly. Cocky bitch, he said through tight lips. Then they curled into a sneer. Well, soon I'll be more welcome around here than you are. I can't wait to see you try to get out of this one. Stuffing the dagger away, he resumed his hurried pace along the path and turned the corner with a swagger in his shoulders. His words, Kier was sure, related somehow to Valraker's. Foreboding gnawed at her, but she was determined to reach her destination. She watched him until he was out of sight, then she braced herself to climb the steps. Once inside the castle, she had to wait for her eyes to adjust after the brightness of the sunlight's reflection off the stones, but once her pupils had dilated and she could see clearly in the dimness, she stared around the small foyer. She blinked a few times to see if the image would alter. Her head whirled and she breathed deeply to steady it. Kier had been here before. The image in her mind's eye was identical to the room before her, her skin prickled with the eeriness of its familiarity. The wood floor was polished as smooth as glass, a great circle the center of which formed the belly of a star whose six arms extended to the white stone walls reflected the light. 
Made of strips of dark wood, the inside star contrasted with the arms that reached out from behind, as if over the original star's shoulder. An even lighter shade of wood, more pine-colored, had been used for still more arms behind the second, all against a background of some pure white wood. Polished and shiny in spite of hundreds of years of footsteps treading over it, the parquet foyer was as if assembled yesterday. Kier felt like a ghost, an ethereal visitor in this reality. She stepped forward. Every detail of the sconces on the stone walls, the wall hangings, the wooden beams that peaked in a circle above, the curve of the walls, every aspect of this foyer was familiar. She longed to bend down and run her fingers along the smooth wood, but crotch and sling were insurmountable obstacles. Her gaze locked on a door at the northwest point of the star. Her dream self had opened that door. Behind it, Kier knew, was the staircase that led up to where the Lady Alon Mare had received her gift. Was she up there, the woman in the portrait who had compelled Kier to come on this mission? If she could just see for herself the flesh-and-blood Alon, maybe Kier would be able to feel that she had done some good after all. Then, she decided, as soon as she could ride again, she'd leave. A door over at roughly the northeast position opened and closed softly. Kier gazed fixed to the door that was her goal, paid no attention. But when the footsteps stopped, the suddenness of the silence snapped her out of her thoughts. She turned to the figure and caught her breath. It was Derry. How long had it been since they had spoken those horrible words to each other? Kier had been only semi-conscious for so long she'd lost track. To her it seemed like a very short time. The warmth of a flush crept up her neck and spread over her face. What must he think of her? He must have found the designs she'd etched into the leather pouch, but had it been enough to earn his forgiveness for the terrible words she'd uttered? Did he wish she were able-bodied enough to wield a sword to defend herself against his defense of his honor? I ought to apologize or something. She came to the realization that neither had spoken, though several heartbeats could have been counted. She swallowed, wishing she could draw sound through her lips. You're he began. Upright. As ever, she could read nothing in his face. Anger, contempt, remorse, relief, all or none of the above, or perhaps only half. Such as it is, she replied. Say something, she told herself. Had she broken the best friendship she'd ever had with foolish behavior and even more foolish words? Why wouldn't he give her a clue? I've been waiting for you to come visit me. He looked away as if a fly had buzzed past his head and begged his notice. What did that mean? Shame? Embarrassment? Total lack of interest? I've been busy. If that isn't a noncommittal lame excuse, I never heard one before, she thought. Dismay and regret fed off each other and quickly bred anger. Kier felt her old self slinking back in. That's just fine. I'm going out of my mind with pain and boredom, and the only two of my so-called friends to come and see me are Fennel and a certain dark elf I don't know where I stand with any more. The captain's eyes flickered at the mention of Val's visit. Kier hobbled a few steps closer to him. We haven't spoken in two weeks, or whatever it is, and apparently I nearly died in that time. You've supposedly got questions for me. What is going on? 
Pierre heard the plaintive note in her voice echo back to her off the flat surfaces in the room. Derry still did not look at her. His head had lowered, and the muscle in his jaw swelled and contracted the way it did when he was angry. Pierre's head thrummed with the pulse of her blood. Derry thrust words out, holding others back. His right hand pressed the air in her direction, commanding her to stop. I cannot talk to you right now. It's too... There's still far too much... He finally met her desperate gaze. The anguish in his eyes matched the seething in her heart. I'm not ready yet, he said. I haven't decided. He seemed to be asking her to understand something that was hopelessly beyond her, as if she'd walked in on the tail end of a discussion and was expected to comment on the issue. She opened her mouth to speak, closed it again. Her head felt just a little woozy. I need to sit down. I have to see Alon Mare, she said. Reverting back to her initial plan, she achieved a sense of outward calm. She gave him a slight nod, like one she'd have given to someone she had just met. Hopping to turn herself in the desired direction, she limped toward the northwesterly door. With the fingertips that protruded pathetically out of the plaster on her left arm, Kier fumbled with the latch. Her vision swayed. The door opened. She directed herself through it. Derry's voice stopped her. So did the sound of his footsteps pounding toward her. There's a question I have for you. She turned her head and involuntarily cringed against his forefinger wagging at her as he lunged her way. How do you know that's the way to Alon's chamber? The bridge of his nose crinkled with disbelief. You've never been here before, so you said, and yet there you go, as if you've done it a hundred times. He gestured wildly at the door, his stance wide. By the gods, Kier, how do you know these things? He squeezed his forehead between his palms as though suffering with a terrible headache. The layout of the castle, the blue serpent, damn it, the bloody rune pattern. How did you know he had it? How did you know about it at all? What did that gods take him Frederick say to you? The volume of his voice had intensified, and he drew it back down again. And how, by the blood of all gods, did you gate us here? His left hand clenched the door, and his right held the door jamb. His six-foot height towered over her. The questions hit Kier like darts, overwhelming her. Her head spun. At that moment, it occurred to her that being vertical for so long after having been horizontal for much longer was perhaps not prudent. A wind filled her ears, Derry's voice faded, and her vision hazed over. She wilted. Derry swooped down to catch her and checked her pulse. Damn you, he thought at her. Damn me. He scooped her up, and enlisting the aid of a young lad who'd just emerged from the great hall, Derry carried her up the stairs. The lad carried her crutch and opened doors for the captain and his burden. Where to, captain? Kean's study, Derry answered without thinking. I guess I'm ready after all. Kean cursed his fingers. This was a particularly difficult passage, a winding sequence of sixteenth notes, and his fingers simply would not heed his commands. Too often recent events had proven he could not have everything the way he wanted by giving orders. He knew Val meant well by telling him to find healthy ways of dispelling his frustrations, hence his return to his room, but this was only making things worse. Kean frowned, licked his lips, and placed them again against the mouthpiece of the flute. A deep breath in, and one e and a triplet three e a 
Yes, that's it. One e and a two e and a. A tap on the door of his chamber threw his concentration. What now? He barked. The door opened tentatively, and a young maid appeared with a tray. Her face was flushed with guilt, and instantly, after establishing eye contact with him, she lowered her gaze to the floor. Your lunch, my lord. You wanted it brought here. Yes, yes. He gestured impatiently. Bring it. Kean laid the flute on his lap. She hustled over and set the tray on the table beside him, though she did not look at him again. Everybody's cowering, he thought with annoyance. She took the lid off the wine decanter and set it on the tray. Will that be all, my lord? she murmured. Kean arrested a snarky rebuke and just said, Yes, Glynn, you may go now. Glynn curtsied. The duke watched her go and ground his teeth. For weeks now his staff had been walking on eggshells whenever he was near. His rational side understood that they loved him, that they loved Alon Mare, and that they did not want to make the mistake of bestirring his temper, but he was tired of keeping his rational side at the surface. He hated being treated like a delicate piece of glass. Nobody wants to be the one to cause me to shatter. Bullshit! The Duke of Three Duchies would not shatter. The strongest man in Rydris would not crack like some mere human. Kean picked up the flute again. Breathe. One e and a triple. Shit. Rage shivered along his skin, and he raised the flute to smash it onto the music stand. It hung in the air, gripped by Kean's rigid right hand. His cheek muscles twitching, Kean lowered the instrument and rested it on the stand gently, like a delicate piece of glass. With shaking hands, he poured a cup of wine and took a steady sip. I can't take much more of this. He lifted the cloth napkin by the corner, and gravity unfolded it. He laid it on his lap. Lifting the lid off the plate, he noticed a corner of white underneath it. He pulled it out. It was a folded piece of paper. Opening it, he glanced at the short, handwritten note. He closed it and put it back on the tray. A picture came to his mind of a conversation that had taken place not all that long ago. Last spring, in his antechamber at Shale Castle, he recalled the eagerness in Valraker's voice as he drew her forward. This is the only one you haven't yet met. She joined us just a week ago and has already forced us all to keep on our toes, Val had said. From your own home duchy, Kian, this is Kier Halliden. Kian remembered the dark eyes that had unflinchingly met his, the handshake that did not tremble. He remembered his immediate impression of her beauty and her character, the lack of intimidation in her voice. How dare she not be afraid of him? Where are you from in Heath, Kier? Hrath. So far north, he'd exclaimed. What brought you southeast to join up with this lot? The thoughtful pause, the cheeky smile that formed as she replied, My horse, actually. His surprise, the chuckle he'd had to suppress before answering, Ah, yes, I have one of those also. Kean picked up the note again. It pains me to tell you that the necklace was delivered by Kier Halliden. Ask her about the symbolism of the serpent. Ask her if she can gate. Out of fear of repercussion, I will only identify myself as one who loves you. Stuffing the note inside his jerkin, Kian rose to his seven-foot height. I could also ask how she obtained Alon's mirror. His fingers vibrated, the only outward sign of his rage, the only crack in his control.
He wrestled them into stillness and took steady steps over to where his great sword leaned, sheathed against the wall by his bed. Two lives, Alon and my child. He strapped the weapon on his back. Two lives for a life. Kian Barthelon was tired of keeping his rational side at the surface. In that instant, he buried it. She owes me four. An icy calm settled over him, taking action at last. He stalked out of the room. Valraker selected two varieties of doughnut and an apple, and after depositing the latter in his pocket, he sampled a bite of each plump, cakey treat. They were still warm from the fryer, and glaze crinkled on their surfaces as they cooled. His mouth watered. The maple walnut one was particularly tasty, so he took two bites in a row from it. Then, so as not to make the chocolate one jealous, he took two bites in a row of it, too. Glynn came into the kitchen as Valraker steered toward the door, licking a crumb off the heel of his hand. "'What's the matter?' he asked when he saw the girl's expression. She put her hands on the counter. "'I think I made him angry.' "'Lord Kean?' she nodded. "'I don't know how. I guess I interrupted him, but he did ask for his lunch at this time, and I didn't want to make him cross by being late, but it seems I—' "'Shh,' Val said. "'Never mind. I'm sure he's more cross with everything else than he is with you, Glynn. Don't worry. He'll come round before long.' She smiled. "'You're right, sir. Thank you, my lord.' "'No problem. Anyway, I'm on my way up to see him. Shall I double-check his mood for you?' Her smile broadened. "'Yes, my lord. He's in his own chamber.' When Val reached the third floor, he popped the last bite of doughnut in his mouth before finding Kian's chamber empty. Kian's lunch was untouched, not difficult to understand a diminished appetite under the circumstances, but nor had he cleaned his flute and put it away, unheard of from his meticulous friend. Val looked about the room for a clue to his whereabouts. It didn't take long for him to notice what was missing. He stepped out of the room to see a servant lad closing the door of Kian's study just down the corridor. Val assumed dairy or fennel or someone was using the room, which reminded him he needed to speak to his captain. Later, though, I'll go find Kian in the practice field. Val was glad his friend was getting some exercise these days. Kian felt the sunshine on his face as he stepped out the main doors of the keep, felt its warmth, its energy, and for the first time in weeks, it felt good. He nodded to each of the guards positioned there and recognized with pride the way they hefted themselves to an even straighter pose to have their lord standing near. He stood a moment on the step, hands clasped behind his back, soaking in the light and relishing the feeling of well-being that had come over him. "'My lord,' said a voice with a hint of surprise, and Kean looked down upon the dark green and grey uniformed figures of Captain Senad with Corporal Gorder approaching the steps. "'What a pleasure to see you out of doors!' "'Thank you, Vivica, Rondo. It's a pleasure to be seen,' he agreed, and hopped down the two steps to ground level. Even at the same level he towered over them. A thought struck him. How timely that the clerk should appear just now. "'May I borrow Rondo for a few minutes, Vivica?' The captain clapped her heels together and bowed. "'Follow me, Corporal. I believe I have an assignment for you.' He walked, and she followed. "'Unofficial, my lord?' Even with her shorter strides, she kept up with him. 
Kean nodded affirmation and headed straight across the courtyard to the infirmary. He was conscious of the stares of his people as they went on about their business, though, to be sure, their steps had more lightness upon seeing him. Kean brushed a hand through his steel-gray hair and planned his move. He'd had visions of bursting in, but the reality was that the infirmary doorway stood a little low. He could not burst effectively while stooping, so he settled on entering rapidly. Followed by Rondo, Kean strode down the hallway until he found the right room. He virtually filled the entrance. Rondo waited outside. One hand he placed on the wall near his head, ready to draw once he'd found his target, but the only person in the room was a healer. "'Your lordship, how good to see you, and how kind of you to come and visit my charge,' Imogen said with a bow. "'Hm, yes,' Kean lowered his arm. "'Where is she?' She went for a walk, and to be honest, I expected her back by now. Perhaps I ought to accompany you to the keep to find her. No matter, Imogen, I will find her myself. No doubt she will need some assistance to return. He enjoyed the puzzled look on Imogen's face. Very well, my lord, thank you. Kean stepped out and gestured for Rondo to follow him again. Once outside, he led her over to the center of the courtyard where no one was nearby. Here is your assignment. You are to go to Quiven and have him prepare a gate. You are going to a place called Hreth. Northwest Heath? Correct. Tell Quiven he must reopen the gate after one hour so that you may return. Once you are there, you will ask around until you find a family called Halliden. Yes, sir, Halliden. What is the message? No message. No message? You kill them. You may recall at the end of the last episode, I mentioned the story being, you know, neatly tied up with a bow. I'm here to point out that I never actually said the story would be neatly tied up with a bow. I just said we like it when it does. The other night we watched the movie Singing in the Rain. Man, that is one of my favorites. And we got to talking about the way quotes from movies and shows become like part of the family lexicon. Here are a few of ours, and let's see if you can tell where they come from. Here's an easy one to start off. Have fun storming the castle. Bow ties are cool. Well, bye. What do you think I am, dumb or something? I don't want to kill you, and you don't want to be dead. What's the gun for? Varmints. What you calling me? A nuisance. Busy day. Well, now I know that. I could have died. Help you down. Today my jurisdiction ends here. Had your chance? Muffed it. I can do it. I like doing it. Who is it? That's a really obscure one from my childhood. I wonder if anybody recognizes that one. There are people who spend time with our family and are confused constantly because we throw in these little quotes all the time that make perfect sense to all of us. And then there's this person who's kind of an outsider who's sitting there going, I have no idea what you guys are talking about. (laughs) Hey, if you have any of those kinds of things in your family, share them with me. I'd love to hear about it. And in the meantime, thank you so much to my family, Matt, David and Heather, and Maggie. 
thanks to David and Sharon, big howdy to the original six, and thank you so much to you for listening. Now, go be fantastic. <laughs>